Hey, well, good morning, Stone Creek. Aren't you glad you came to church already? Come on, what in the world? That was incredible. Um, we are finishing up this series today called Be Real. Let's all say that together. Be Real. And just the whole premise behind this series um, was that in 2022, the most uh, popular social media app um, was called Be Real. And the way Be Real works is you, along with your friends who are subscribed to this particular application, you will get a notification. You have two minutes to take a picture wherever you are. And so you take a picture front-facing that's you, but also backward-facing, which is where you are. And you can only imagine sometimes that could get really real, if you know what I'm saying. And so just this idea that we just live filtered lives. That what we see on social media, what we see on Instagram or Facebook or even just in public, our lives are just filtered. We always have a filter for our face. We have, you know, we edit photos. We get just the right angle. So even around here, when they take pictures of me on stage to post, I'm always like, be sure you get my good side, you know, because I want them to get the right angle. Do y'all know which side's the good side? Whatever side you're sitting on, that's the good side. Um, but we, we, we have this idea and we just, we live filtered lives. And think about all the places where we have filters, how many people drink filtered water from your refrigerator? Let's go. And then when it goes bad, like, you're, you know, you let it go a month or two, you're like, I'm going to die. I'm poisoning myself because my filter's broken. We have filtered air um, that we like to breathe. Uh, we have blue light filters on our computers. How many people have polarized sunglasses, filters out the UV lights? We have filters. You know, your, your news media is filtered. Now, we, we don't call it filtered. We call it curated, don't we? It's curated. And every time you uh, see an ad or you see a news story, all they're doing is feeding you the things you already believe and narrowing your vision of the world because it is filtered, it is edited. And, and I think one of the reasons that you show up here on Sunday, I think, I believe that one of the reasons that you come even when it's raining, because today is the first Sunday it hasn't rained all year, hello? I think one reason we have to pull out chairs every week, I think one reason there's standing room only around this place is because you are looking for something real. Amen? Like you're looking for something real, something that matters, something that's soul-stirring, like the story we just heard uh, and the stories that we hear so frequently, whether it's in our students or in our marriages or in people's lives. You're looking for something real. We're all looking for something that's real. It's why we buy organic. Come on. It's why we love Trader Joe's or DeKalb Farmer's Market. We want something real, man. We are looking for something that's going to matter. And in 2023, in a lot of places, uh, if we're honest, over the last 20, 30 years, Christianity's been filtered. Amen? Man, the gospel's been filtered. Christianity has been edited, and Jesus has been photoshopped. And we do that at the sake, for the sake of making more appealing and more palatable. But let me just tell you something. When you start filtering the gospel, you know what happens? You lose its power. Come on, somebody. Right? You lose the power of life change, the power of transformation, what God can do in your heart and in my heart. And you know, you know something's wrong in this world. We don't have to look far. Man, we know something's wrong in the world. We know something's wrong in here. Come on, right? You know that, right? You already know something's happening, and sometimes we can't articulate it. We don't know how to put our finger on it. We don't know how to dial it up. And so we need something that's real. We need something that's real. So today I want to close out this series talking about three things. Number one, the real gospel, right? Not something that's just uh, given with a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down, right? <laughs> something that's powerful that can transform your life, the gospel, real Christianity, Real Christianity, what does that even mean? And then a real relationship with God, how do we do that? So maybe you're new to faith, maybe you're new to church, maybe a friend invited you. We're so glad that you're here. Thanks for being here. Um, and so hopefully today you can learn some things, maybe some understanding a little bit. Maybe you have some misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian or what the gospel is um, or even what a relationship with God means. Maybe that's you today. 
You know, maybe you're kind of moving along in your faith, and honestly, you're just going through the motions. You're just going through the motions. And today, hopefully, I can stir you a little bit, wake you a little bit, maybe, you know, uh, not physically shake you, but if that would work, I would do that. Um, You know, just shake you a little bit, just to kind of get your attention to be like, there's more to your life than you're living right now. So, so three steps at the end of our service today. Number one, there's going to be some people here you're going to realize you're not following Jesus and you want to. So we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. Number two, there's some people, again, who need to kind of get off the bench and, get, and realize some things that maybe you've forgotten that God wants to just remind you of today. And then the third thing, I think there's some people in here that need to get baptized next week. And so we're going to, that's going to be the three steps at the end. The rest is just filler so I can take up my time. Uh, Just kidding. So you know that as Cliff was reading in John chapter 15, and again, I'm going to start out uh, talking about the real gospel, just the real gospel. When when he starts out reading in chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus said this. And and again, remember this, this is when Jesus is getting close to the end. This is his last audience he's going to have with those who are going to carry his mission forward. And he says, this is the commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, the great commandment, love people. And we're supposed to love people the way Jesus loved us. He says, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Now, that's pretty radical. Like if you love somebody, you're going to lay down your life for, for your friends. Now, now, in that, we see the gospel. In this, we see Jesus kind of capturing what's about to happen to him. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's going to be executed for our sins. He's going to be placed in a borrowed tomb. Some people are going to show up the next day, and what do they find? Not Jesus. That's what they find. Jesus is risen. And Jesus is pointing to that in these words. He's pointing to what we call the gospel. Now, we have a, another definition, another time that Jesus references it over in the book of Mark when Jesus references the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You should all get your act together. No. You should all follow the rules. No. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Like he, he uses this word kingdom and this word gospel. Let me just start out by unpacking what the word gospel literally means. Like you've probably seen the gospel according to Evan Almighty. I don't know. Um, you know, there's sometimes we see this, this word gospel. It literally means good news. You have good news. Now, in the Roman culture that Jesus is speaking in, a couple of times this is used. When the king or the Caesar would have a a male child who was going to inherit the throne, they sent a proclamation out all over the Roman Empire that told everybody because it was what? Good news. He was going to be the next leader. He was the next in line. He's the next royalty. So everybody did what? They celebrated good news. Now, Now, another way that it's used is when a nation or a village may go into battle. And the people who stayed behind, the women, the children, the older men, when they stayed behind, they were a little fearful of what was going to happen. Because if their armies got beat and the opposing army comes to get them, they're going to be enslaved. Their lives are going to be ruined. They won't have enough to eat. They won't have a place to stay. They'll be subject to whoever the enemy is. However, if the messenger comes across the horizon... And he comes in and says, we won. It was massive. They would celebrate. Man, they would have a party because it was good news. It wasn't just good advice. It was good news. And this is what Jesus is saying. The gospel, the good news of what? The good news of the kingdom. 
You see, one of the things that we forget, especially as we try to get through life and we live really small lives, is there are two kingdoms at battle here. And it is not the kingdom of Kansas City and Philadelphia. Hello? Hey, it's not the kingdom of China and the United States. It's not the kingdom of Democrats and Republicans. It's the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Jesus. And we live these such small lives. We get caught up in these really small narratives when this epic cosmic kingdom battle is at place. And we get to live into this kingdom. Jesus prays for this. Uh, how many of you guys know the Lord's Prayer? Most people, like some of you are like, I know I should know. I'm just going to say yes. Um, <laughs> funny story on this. When my kids were growing up, I never wanted them to be the preacher's kids, so I didn't want to overbearing on them about memorizing the Bible. And so, so one day they come home from middle school, and they say, hey, Dad, the, uh, Coach, Coach Fountain wants us to say the Lord's Prayer, and I don't know it. I'm like, epic fail, Dad. Way to go. But it goes like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be the name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like this is, this is the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, now just to kind of take it a step further, sometimes we don't, we don't fully understand even what that message is. So I'm going to give you four points. There's a lot of little nuggets I'm going to give you. You're going to need to do a lot of writing. Um, but four, four ways that we remember the gospel around this place, okay? So, so go with me. Number one, God is good. Hello? Right? God is good. Even, in the, even when you can't see it, even when you don't understand it, God is good. This is a definition of faith. Like even the demons believe in God. They don't have faith in God. Faith is believing not just that God exists, but that he rewards those who seek him, the Bible says. God is good. Hey, second thing, we know this, there's a problem. Hey, the problem is sin. The problem is sin. Hey, the problem is not uh, a bad diagnosis. The problem is not a syndrome. The problem is not your mistakes. The problem is sin. That's the problem. It breaks. It was massive. It shattered God's perfect plan. That's how strong it is. That's how serious we should take it. Hey, but there's hope. Hello. Right? There's hope. And his name is what? His name is Jesus. That Jesus came to reestablish our relationship with God, that Jesus came so that we could have hope, that Jesus came so our sins would be forgiven. You know, I can remember once before I was in ministry and after I'd given my life to Christ, I was having this conversation with a guy about sin. And he's like, I just don't think you should tell people that, they're, that they sin. You already know, don't you? Like you already know. You know something's broken. You know something's wrong. And maybe you're here today and you've never been able to identify it. This is it. This is the problem. Oh, but there's hope. His name is Jesus, and there's a response. It's called surrendering our lives. It's called, you don't have an encounter with the cosmic king and not have your life changed. Amen? Like, this is the response that we have. This is the real gospel. Now, now Paul, Paul wants us to be careful to always teach the gospel. Uh, over in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 1, Paul says these words in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And I know this is on the screen, so let me just keep going. As we have said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Woo, that's serious. Like, Paul could call down some curses. Like, we would love to curse somebody. Paul actually could do it. Like, we would curse somebody. Well, we curse that people, or don't we? Um, you, not me. But Paul actually could curse people, and he's saying, don't forget. This is how significant it is to hang on to the true gospel. And let me just highlight for you some of the false gospels that are permeating our culture. Some of them you're aware of, and all of them have probably a sliver of truth. So it's easy for us to be deceived. So let's just talk about this one, prosperity gospel. Prosperity. How many people have heard of the prosperity gospel? This is how prosperity gospel goes. Hey, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to have everything your heart desires. Now, here's the, here's the thing. That is true, but in the kingdom, okay? That is true, but in the kingdom. And right now, we live in this in-between time. The kingdom has started, but it's not yet fully here. And so if you believe that God wants you to be rich, there's one thing you're ignoring. The Bible, that's what you're ignoring. Because his 12 followers, what were they? They all died, and they died bad. They died bad. Jesus, oh, Jesus had a mansion, yeah. He had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus died, and Jesus died bad. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Like the problem with the prosperity gospel is that we're going to have, we're going to have struggle. That in this world we have problems. We have tragedies. This world is not exactly operating the way God has designed it. And it's not operating the way, the way it will one day in the fullness of the kingdom. And this is a heresy that got you burned at the stake back at the Reformation. And, I'm not, and it has just permeated our lives. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you don't like the cards you've been dealt. And there's been tragedy and bad diagnosis, and car wrecks, and cancer, and morgues, and ambulances, and broken dreams, and relationships, you may be a little bitter at God. And if you are, it's because you misunderstood the gospel. Here's the gospel. Jesus is with you right now. And he wants to carry you through. He wants to help you get to the other side. He wants to offer comfort and healing, and and he wants to offer some purpose in this. Promise is, this is not all there is. One day, he's going to make all things new. One day, everything will be restored. One day, Jesus will restore what the locusts have eaten, an image we get from the Bible. So if you're here today, I just want to tell you, man, God loves you. And I'm so sorry that you've been sold a bill of goods by someone who said you did something to deserve what happened to you. That's the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. It's going to send people to hell. Ooh, that just got heavy. (laughs) Hey, what about this one? This is a little different one. Um, I'm going to call it the evangelism-only gospel. And this is probably for some of my church people more than anything, the evangelism-only gospel. So so what I mean by this is that there's, there's, there's a belief out there that you have to do everything you can so someone will hear the gospel. So you don't want to judge them. You don't want to say anything difficult. You don't, want to, you don't want to do anything that would disrupt your ability to speak the gospel to them. You want to make it as palatable as possible. You want it to be as sweet as possible. And, and certainly we should do whatever we can. But what, what, what's happened is that has swung so far, we won't, say, we won't tell the truth. 
Man, we won't stand up for the things that God says stand up for, all at the expense and under the, the excuse of, ah, you know what, i got to just keep the doors open so one day they may respond to the gospel. Now listen, evangelism is really important. But I think what has happened in the church and the United States is that we have tried to make it so easy for people that we have not given God a foundation to stand on. Hello? And so I think that there are times when we have to tell the truth. Now, now here, here's another problem. Sometimes we tell the truth and we act like we're really angry. Come on. <laughs> like, have you ever, you know, heard a preacher talk about, you, maybe you grew up with this, you know, like you're going to hell and he, it almost seemed like he was glad you were. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I, we shouldn't be judgment, judgmental. Our language should be seasoned with, seasoned with salt is the way Paul says that. And we should speak the truth in what? Love. We should speak the truth in love. But, but speak the what? The truth. So, so we'll say things like, you know, there's, there's things that are for insiders. There are things that are for Christians and things that are for non-Christians. And, and that can be true. But let me just say that, especially to the Bible knowers in here, Jonah walked through Nineveh preaching, repent or you will die. Nineveh, they were not insiders. They were not Jews. They were Assyrians. And so we have to not worship at the altar of evangelism for the sake of our own comfort. Now, now we are an evangelistic church. We want to share the gospel, but we want it to be a gospel of power in your life, and we want it to change you. False gospel of evangelism. Hey, here's one, the false gospel of making my life work. I couldn't come up with a cool one-word title for that one. Um, the gospel of making my life work. Now, now, here's what I know. If you followed the Bible without the power of God in your life, your life would be a lot better. Okay? It'd be better. You'd learn how to handle your money better. Your marriage would be a lot better. <laughs> Your wife or your husband would actually like you, or you would actually get married. Um, like if you followed the Bible, but that is not the point. The point of the gospel is not that life would work. It's not that we would make wise decisions. Some of the most foolish decisions you've ever seen happen in the Bible. And we see God work some of the biggest miracles in the Bible. Ask Noah how foolish it was to build an ark when they hadn't seen rain in years. Ask Elijah how foolish it was when he called down lightning in a thunderstorm when they'd been in a drought. Ask David how foolish it was to charge the line against Goliath with a slingshot for crying out loud. Doesn't seem like a wise decision to me. Now, I'm all for wise decision. I've, I've raised four children, and I hope they always make wise decisions. So don't hear me say we shouldn't make wise decisions, but that is not the God we serve. Man, we see a God who works miracles, a God who moves in power, and a God who will change your life. Man, the, the, the gospel of making life work. Another way in the same category is this idea of just morality. You know, we believe that the gospel is just about morality. And listen, if you believe the gospel, you will definitely be a more moral person. <laughs> like, it's definitely going to have that impact. But we, we move the gospel from this powerful uh, truth that changes our life into this list of do's and don'ts of morality and behavior. The gospel of making life work. Hey, what about the false gospel of cheap grace? Cheap grace. Oh man, I'm forgiven. I can just, it, it doesn't really, I know I shouldn't have done it, but hey, God forgives me. Ah, you know, Jesus died. I'm, I'm forgiven. A sin's a sin, a sin. Heresy. Wrong. Paul even says this So if we have so much grace, should I just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Because if I sin more, then there's more grace to go around, and then we see more grace. May it never be, Paul says. 
May it never be. May we always remember that sin is what shattered this universe. That my sin and your sin, and that it is forgiveness. Yes, it's a gospel of grace. Thank the Lord. It's not judgment. Man, we get something that we never deserve. We get the kingdom. Man, we get the king. It's a gospel of peace that we can have peace with God. But you just got to know. That if we go through life and we just have this mentality, I can do what I want, when I want, and at the end I get to go to heaven, that is not the gospel. You know, part of the gospel some people believe is like, you know, we just live and we get to go to heaven when we die and we just sing songs forever and ever. Like for some people, some of you guys, that sounds like hell, doesn't it? You don't like that idea at all. (laughs) But let us never be subject to cheap grace. The Son of God died, was executed, was murdered, was separated from his heavenly father. Why? So we could have life and have it to the full. I'm so grateful for that. False gospel of cheap grace. Your heart is made for the kingdom. Hey, your heart is made for the kingdom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon is actually writing that, and Solomon just kind of says, hey, the end of all things is at hand. Um, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he goes on to say, God has put what eternity in the hearts of men. So that, so that we don't even know from beginning to end what God has done. That haunting in your soul, that restlessness, that question, that feeling like, got to be more to life than this. That's God who put that in your heart. What's the, you repent and believe the gospel. I wasn't going to read this. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, Paul writes this in Romans. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it gets better. Okay, you ready? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet that preach what good news? The gospel. The gospel. Man, this is the real gospel. Do you live a false gospel? You have to ask yourself the question. Are there aspects of your life where you're living a false gospel? Is it the gospel of, I go to my Bible study every single week, every single day? Like some guys I meet, like, I'm in six Bible studies. I'm like, you must be a terrible person. (laughs) Now, should you go to Bible study? Yes, you should go to Bible study. But we think we do these things, these cultural Christian things, and it makes us good with God. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's the death, burial, resurrection of our King, Jesus. All right, real Christianity. Real Christianity. In verse 14 of that, uh, the John 15 passage, Jesus is speaking. And again, Jesus says this. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Like, you're my friends if you do what I command you. So you see this little phrase, do what I command. Like, there are some things that you do. There's some things that we follow. There's some obedience that happens. And this is just what we would call discipleship. If we flipped over um, to the book of Matthew to what's called the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. How many people have heard of the Great Commission? Most people, okay, but some of you may not. The Great Commission, these are Jesus' final words to his followers. This is the thing that we're supposed to be about. And in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, what? Make disciples. There it is. That's the mission of the church. Make disciples. 
Then he goes on to say, baptizing them of the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, telling them to become Christians. That's not in there. Teaching them to what? Observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So here we have this thing called the Great Commission. And Jesus says, Jesus didn't say, get people to make a decision. Jesus says, make disciples, doesn't he? He says, make disciples. What's a disciple? It's someone who follows Jesus. It's someone who follows Jesus. Now, now the word Christian actually started um, in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 11. And um, it's used in a city called Antioch. Uh, I'm going to throw it on the screen. I don't want to turn there. But it's using the city of Antioch. And, and you'll see that it says uh, Barnabas, they went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When they found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, taught a lot of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were called Christians. First time. The disciples. The disciples were called Christians. First time. Now, when they called them Christians, it was actually a pejorative term. It was an insult to be called Christian. Now, the word was a compound word. And it was the two words that are put together for this compound word. One was Christ, and one was little. It says they're a bunch of little Christs. They act just like Jesus acted. They do the things that Jesus did. They teach the things that Jesus taught. Little Christs. And that's what a disciple is. It's someone who follows Jesus. Jesus' invitation was not to become a Christian. It was to follow Jesus me. Listen, their, their lives were so different, and their difference was so clear. It was so unmistakable that everybody noticed. Another thing they would say about them, they were like, see how they love each other? Anybody ever said that about you? <laughs> when the plague came through the Roman Empire, they were carrying 5,000 dead bodies a day out of the city of Rome Everybody was leaving the city because there was so much death and disease and destruction, except one group, the Christians. They stayed in the city, they nursed the sick, they buried the dead, and they cared for the living. And that is when they said, see how they love each other. Love was a distinguishing mark in their lives. They were what? They were disciples. They were followers. You know, for us, Christianity has become a religion and not a relationship. You know, a religion, you know what that is. Follow the rules, check the boxes, do the rituals, do the thing. You know, some of you grew up in a more ritualistic tradition, and you kind of went through it and got on your own. You're like, man, that feels empty. That feels void of any power. And I'm not saying that rituals aren't incredibly meaningful and powerful. They can be, but they can also be empty and worthless idols. And what can happen is if we don't remember that we're following a person, we're following Jesus, Christianity can just become this list of do's and don'ts. We are a people. If, you follow, if you're a disciple, you're what you follow Jesus. That's who you follow. I love this. Um, uh, there's a movie, Ford versus Ferrari. Ford v. Ferrari, I guess is the name of it. You've seen this movie. Pretty incredible. Please tell me it's not rated R, Aaron. I don't know. Is it? Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, if it was, anyway, it's still awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm just being real, right? Uh, and so in that movie, Matt Damon's playing Carol Shelby of Shelby GT fame. And so uh, Ford hires him to build a race car to beat Ferrari at Le Mans. And so the very first press conference, Shelby gets up and he says, my name's Carol Shelby and I build race cars. And he walks off the stage. 
Like how, how incredibly clear is that? Hey, my name's Stephen Gibbs. I follow Jesus. Like how simple is that? That is the simple formula for what real Christianity is made of. The one question to ask yourself is, who would Jesus be if Jesus were you? Who, who would Jesus be if Jesus were me? And so what I mean by that, let's say you got a business trip and you're headed out to uh, Rochester next week. You're probably going to get snowed in. But let's say you're supposed to go to Rochester next week, got a couple meetings, going to come home. Or maybe you're going to be carting your kids around to soccer practice in the minivan. Hello, love your life, don't you? Uh, <laughs> Or maybe you're going to be going to work and leading a handful of meetings. Or maybe you've got a neighborhood gathering. Whatever it is. Like, who would Jesus be if Jesus were you in those situations? How would Jesus respond? What would Jesus think? How would Jesus talk? What would be his priorities? Who would Jesus be if Jesus were you? This is what it means to follow Jesus. We follow a person. You know, a lot of us grew up in a tradition where when someone decided to become a Christian, they would say uh, that they would ask Jesus into their heart. And, and, and I don't want to criticize that, but I want to correct it. Um, and so you'll notice that when I, when I uh, at the end of the services, when I give people the invitation, I say, hey, do you want to commit to what? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's real Christianity. Jesus even says in John chapter 15, a little bit later in those verses, in 15 verse 16, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and what? Bear fruit and that your fruit should abide your fruit should last. We should bear fruit. There should be some outgrowth in our life that shows that we are people who follow Jesus. And discipleship can turn into this standardization. You know, it could be, hey, I did this workbook. I went to Wednesday night. I was in a youth group. I went to catechism. And those are great tools. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus. Like, like who would Jesus be? It was this idea of being with him in order to be like him. Being with him in order to be like him. I want you to imagine you go to the doctor next week. Some of you are. And the doctor says, yeah, <clears throat> I didn't do a residency. Yeah, I just, I read the books, watched some YouTube videos, stayed at Holiday Inn Express one time. And you're going to be like, I'm out. Where's the door? Like, you didn't do a re you didn't watch, you didn't practice, nobody trained you, they didn't show you. Like, this is the model we have. We follow Jesus. Man, do you follow Jesus? Could you stand on a stage or stand in front of him toe to toe and say, My name is George Smith, and I follow Jesus? Your daily habits reflect that you follow Jesus? Does your prayer life reflect that you follow Jesus? And does, uh, does your Bible study reflect that you follow Jesus again? Not that that's the end all to be all, but Bible's really important, as, as unpopular as it is these days. All of the Bible's important, too. Like, do you follow Jesus? Real gospel, real Christianity, hey, real friendship. Jesus uses something in this phrase, in this, in this context, it's so wildly new, especially for a religious system, typically, when he says, he says in verse 15, when he talks about being friends with God, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Man, I've called you friends. Man, like Jesus is a real friend. He's not imaginary. He's not play acting. He's not a principle. He's not a force. He's not a good idea. Jesus is a real friend. He talks about having a personal 
relationship. And, and man, this is really important. So think about this. Jesus has a name. He has a name. You'll notice when you come in the lobby, it says what? Elevate the name of the big man upstairs. Elevate the name of the big guy. Elevate the name of my homeboy. None of that. Elevate the name of Jesus. Why? That is his name. If he had a birth certificate, that would be on there. His mom named him Jesus. Even the angel says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Like he, He's a real person. He has a name. And we need to claim it every chance that we get. We need to say it out loud. Have you noticed how hard it is, how easy it is to say God and how hard it is to say the word Jesus? You think that could be a clash of kingdoms happening in your life? Come on. He has a name, personal name, and his name is Jesus. He has a body. It even says in the book of Isaiah, it talks about, hey, he wasn't really, he wasn't really attractive to look at. It even says that. I feel like Isaiah got in trouble for that one. Um, Jesus, Jesus has a personality. Have you ever thought about Jesus' personality, what that looks like? Like, do you ever, do you ever laugh all the time? Like, if you were here last week, you laughed the whole time I was up here. <laughs> but we laugh. Why do we laugh? Because we're created that way. Did Jesus laugh? Yes. It, I went through a l- large portion of my life where I was kind of like, thought Jesus was always just really stern all the time. Stephen, quit thinking that. Hey, you should get up and go help that person. Did you really just say that? Like, I feel like, but then as you begin to look at his personality, as you begin to read in the scripture, Jesus said this, all the children would flock to him, the Bible says. Are kids flocking to someone who doesn't laugh and smile? Man, he was accused of being uh, a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he was a party animal. Like, he showed up at parties. He had fun at parties. He talks about the joy uh, uh, in many different parables of the kingdom. Why? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus laughs. That's why you laugh. Jesus has his personality. Do you, ever, do you ever get angry? Jesus does. Jesus gets angry. Man, there's a story about his buddy Lazarus. So one of his closest friends outside of his disciples was Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So Lazarus dies. He dies. Now, now, Lazarus' sisters had sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And they said, would you come? And Jesus waited three days on purpose. Jesus shows up at Lazarus' house, and it said that he was deeply troubled. Now, that word, the words that describe deeply troubled in the Greek language, actually mean a, a snorting of a horse in anger. Listen, Jesus was angry. We see he goes into the temple, and he finds some people extorting money from the poor. What does he do? He turns the tables over, grabs a whip, and runs them out of the building. Like, imagine you're coming in the parking lot, and I'm doing that out in the lobby. (laughs) You're sending me to counseling is what you're doing. Man, Jesus got angry. Man, he's a real person. Hey, Jesus got sad. Jesus got sad. In that same scenario with Lazarus, you know, we, we, some of us know this. You know, we call it the shortest Bible verse. Like, what's your favorite verse? And people will say the shortest Bible verse because they're too lazy to memorize anything. Oh, wait, did I say that? Um, <laughs> we don't memorize anything else. But think about it. The shortest verse, Jesus wept. Man, Jesus had emotions. He was a person. And the language that we get here in the language of friendship is that we can know him. 
Listen, we can know him. And when I say know him, I mean like know him like you know a friend. There's some people that you don't really know. You kind of know them and you don't know them. So, for instance, if I were to tell you, so how many of you guys, you've heard of Dan Marino? Dan Marino, NFL Hall of Fame quarterback. When I was in high school, Dan Marino was, had come to my hometown with one of his teammates. And somehow I lucked into being able to escort him all over, the ta- all over town all day long. I took him to lunch, took him to the clubs, just kidding. Um, I just want you to be with me, come on. I took him to a hotel. I get to the hotel, he's like, hey, do you happen to have a comb? I need a comb. I don't have a comb. I'm like, dude, you got an afro. Like, I don't know what you're talking about up there. Like, you don't need a comb. Um, so I, I, I met him, right? But if I were to stand up here and say, yeah, I know Dan Marino, and you were to run into him on the street, say, yeah, our pastor knows you, he'd be like, who? I don't, I don't know him. And sometimes that's how we think we know Jesus. Man, he's just kind of distant out there, know some things about him. Yeah, he's pretty popular, but we don't know him. And what Jesus is saying is when you know a friend, listen, you can know him. Not secondhand knowledge, but know him. I got a list of questions. I'm just going to burn through them on ways, things that you can know about Jesus. Do you know why he had to be born of a virgin or why he was presented at the temple you know, what he talked about in his first sermon or his first miracle, what he did for a job before ministry, where he was right before his ministry. He grew up with a single mom. Do you know the one way that Jesus describes himself, the five words that Jesus used to describe who he is? Do you know when he got the angriest or what made him the saddest? Do you know that Jesus was the happiest or when he was the most exhausted? Do you know what he hates and what he loves? Do you know what he thinks about you? Do you know what it means for him to be a rabbi? Do you know how filthy, excuse me, how wealthy he is and how poor he was? Do you know what his house was like when he lived here? Do you know his first words or his last words or what he cares about the most? Do you know what he doesn't care about at all? Do you know his sense of humor? Do you know when he's had enough? Do you know when his presence has left the room or enters the room? Do you know his tone or who his best friends were or how many half-siblings he had? You know, the town he was born in, the town he was a refugee in, the town he grew up in, the town he taught in, the town he was rejected in, the town he died in. You know what his favorite verse was or his favorite topic was? Do you know what he taught about more than anything else? Do you know what he said about why he had to die? Do you know why he was willing to suffer and die? Do you know what he was thinking about as he died? Do you know what he was feeling as he died? Do you know what he says he can't forgive? Do you know what his relationship was like with his dad? Do you know what he said yesterday? Do you know what he wants right now? Do you know him in a way that even the Bible doesn't describe him? Be careful. Do you know where he is right now? Do you know what he's doing right now? Do you know what he's waiting for? Do you know why he hasn't come back? Do you know why he hasn't split open the skies? Do you know why he doesn't stop pain from coming into the world? Do you know that he could? Do you know his voice? Do you know what his words mean? Do you know what he did? Do you know how he spent his time? Do you know how he talked to people? Do you know what miracles he performed? Do you know why he was named Jesus? These are all things that we can know about Jesus. Because we can know Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? We can all know him better. But like deep down, when you ask yourself the question, do you know him? And here's my favorite part of this whole talk today. And I've had a lot of favorite parts, obviously. He chooses us. He says, I chose you. Man, Jesus picks us. I love that. 
It reminds me of uh, when Sally Field won the Oscar many years ago. She has a speech that's pretty famous. And she gets up in front of everybody, in front of the academy, and she says, what? You like me. (laughs) You really, really like me. Man, Jesus chooses us. Have you ever been chosen before? Maybe you were chosen by a, a spouse, or you got picked for a job, or you got into that college, or you got on that team, or in that club, or invited to that party. Man, there's just some power that shows up when you get chosen. You don't have to do anything for it. I think what Jesus is trying to point out here, it's like you didn't do anything for me. I chose you for you. Like what's more important? What is better than that? You know, if I were looking to pick some friends, maybe like you, I don't know that I'd have picked me. Like if maybe some of you, you know, you love sports. If you got to pick one friend, you'd pick Steph Curry. You'd think you'd pick LeBron James, but you'd be dumb. <laughs> Maybe you're a musician. You'd pick Taylor Swift. You know, we, we would pick people that are important, who have some value, who can add something to our lives, who can make us feel like we're worth something. Jesus doesn't do that. Man, look at the people that Jesus picked. Like he comes along to a woman who is hiding from everybody. She's out in the middle of the day because nobody else will be out. And he begins to have this conversation with her. She'd been married five times. She's sleeping with her boyfriend at the time. And Jesus, what? He chooses her. When Peter, and most of us have heard of Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' closest followers. He's one of the disciples. Man, Jesus picks Peter. Peter had been overlooked for everything. Peter, would his parents would love for him to have gone to rabbinical school. He didn't get picked. Didn't have the grades, didn't have the wit. So he is a fisherman. He's a common laborer. And what does Jesus say? Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Man, Jesus picked Peter. Matthew. Matthew is despised by his family, despised by his people, despised. Yet what? Jesus picks Matthew to follow him. Man, it doesn't matter what happens. Jesus picks us. Like, I don't know what what you've done, but I know it's sinful because all of us have sinned. And in the middle of that, guess what? Jesus picks you today. Jesus picks you. Like, all the tears that you've shed, all the pain that you've been through, all the unanswered questions you have, man, he just wants to step right into the middle of that today. He picks you, right? Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you choose to follow him today? Is your life working? Do you have any unanswered questions? Man, Jesus picks you today. And he came and he died. And he didn't just get to pick like he's picking teams. Man, he has some skin in the game like literal skin in the game. And he died for us. That's how much, that's how much Jesus loved. Listen, he's better. He's better than everything you've been looking for. Listen, he's just better. He's better than your job. He's better than your bank account. He's better than your marriage. He's better than your children. He's better than your grandchildren. He's better than Potox. He's better than the gym. He's better than a title. He's better than retirement. He's better than a beach house. He's better than a mountain home. Man, Jesus is better. Listen, he's better. Why wouldn't you choose him? I want to close with this story. There's a guy named Joseph Scriven back in the 1800s. 
Joseph grew up in a pretty wealthy family, kind of was able to do everything he wanted to do. And so he went to college in London. He grew up in Dublin. He went to college in London, was very successful, went back home, was going to go to military college. Um, But when he got there, he realized he had some health issues that weren't going to allow him to be able to be in the military. And so he gives his life to be a teacher, just begins to pour his life out in service. He gets engaged, and the day before his wedding, he's going across a bridge with his wife. She falls off the horse and drowns in the river, and he can't get to her. Tragedy. So Joseph moves to Canada. He moves to Port Hope, Ontario, just to start over. And so when he moves there, he just goes about pouring his life into kids, and he just becomes a teacher again, and he he finds himself engaged again and very excited about getting married. And tragedy strikes twice story and his wife gets ill and she dies and so he just instead of finding sadness man Joseph found a mission he found a mission and God redeemed that and he just began to pour his life out for people and give away things and you know there are stories of him giving away his clothes there's a story of these two guys standing on the corner one of them looks over and sees Joseph and they're like you know I'd love to help him I think I'll hire him to cut some wood for me and the other guy says to him, well, he wouldn't do it because, number one, you're not poor, and number two, you're not physically disabled, so he wouldn't do it for you anyway. He wouldn't do it just for money. Found a mission. And then his mom sends word that she's sick, and she's probably not going to make it, and she wants him to come home, and he can't because he can't afford it. So what, what Joseph did, man, was he wrote her some words that he'd experienced in his life, a poem that turned into a great hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Man, what what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear, all because we won't carry everything to God in prayer. You have trials and temptations. Our struggle's always near. Never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? share? We should never be discouraged. He knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Joseph Scriven knows somebody. Do you? Let's pray together.